Good evening. This is Cinema 60. You like this all the time? Like what? I don't know. My league, the guy usually makes the pitch. When you not only pitch it, pick up the bat and hit for him. You come on like this with all the guys? No, only with the special ones. How many of those have you met? One, yesterday. Why well, you thought he was so special? No, I don't know. I watched all those people last night while he was playing. They thought he was pretty special, too. Yep, plays a good horn. Yep, plays a good horn much more than that. It's the way he feels when he plays it and the way he made me feel. Hi, Jenna. Hi, Bart. Gee whiz. Another year has come and gone, and with it, another season of Cinema 60 has come to an end. Who wrote that? Was that Robert Frost? <laughs> I'm, I'm positive that Robert Frost wrote that. Uh, this was a weird year for us, right? It was a little strange. I think our lives got in the way a little bit this year. Yeah, we both started new jobs this year. Or, well, you got a promotion, right? And I started a brand new job. And uh, it's a time suck having a job. Yeah. So, you know, we didn't get to put out as many episodes as normal. So apologies for that. Uh, this was kind, of, was kind of a rough year in that way. But, um, but things are looking up. We're feeling good. Mm-hmm. And you know what would make life really worth living? If people liked, subscribed, retweeted, shared and reviewed our little podcast on whatever and whichever platform they listen to it on. I agree. I like being liked. That's right. It is our yearly beg for reviews. That's what we're doing right now. Uh, it not only helps us broaden our audience, it also feels really great to know that we're not just uh, yelling out our niche interests into the void. We're yelling it into a niche void. Well, the 60s are hot right now. You've got the French Dispatch. You've got Last Night in Soho. Everybody cares about the 60s right now. So true. Mid-century furniture is really big still. It's been big for a while, and it's still going strong. And now we're getting into that kind of like Italian, like end of the 60s, funky plastic furniture. Love it. Mm-hmm. I don't have any yet, but I definitely will be redecorating soon with my big promotion. <laughs> I just can't wait for you to have like a conversation pit with one of those like fireplaces that takes up the entire middle of the living oh, room. Oh yeah, the sunken living room like the Beatles in Help. That's what I've always dreamed of. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I'm not even not even yeah. joking. <laughs> but um in lieu of that, unless you guys want to donate to our make a cinema 60 house exactly like the help house uh we would really love if you could go ahead and and share our podcast if you know somebody who would like this podcast send it to them or give us a retweet or a facebook share uh especially when an episode comes out that you really enjoyed a lot of you do this already and i think you're totally swell for it so thank you for that yeah neato you know what else is nice what when people send us an email and they say, hey, I like your show, but why the hell haven't you covered? Yeah, we got one of those recently or not even that recently, but we're finally getting around to to responding to it. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly how today's episode got made. 
And wow, Bart, did you realize that the zaddy on the Newman's own microwave popcorn box was actually a real person and he was an actor? No, I did not know that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm kidding. I would I would sell my soul for a chance to like travel through time and go up to Paul Newman and say, you're hot. That's it. I won't presume that he would actually sleep with me. No. I mean, I'd ha- I'd, I would accept it, but I, won't, I wouldn't presume it. He was reputedly totally faithful to his longtime wife, second wife. Well, I'm not traveling in time to when he's married. <laughs> <laughs> but that's when he was sexy, a little when he was a little bit older. It's true. He only he aged really well, quite frankly. Take note, men. Well, if you haven't guessed already, what that email said is why the hell haven't you done any Paul Newman yet? We've covered two Paul Newman movies, one in our uh, Tennessee Williams episode, uh, Sweet Bird of Youth. And uh, Jenna, you in our Sophia Loren episode, you talked about Lady L briefly. But yeah, for somebody who was so important to the 60s, we, uh, we definitely haven't done enough Paul Newman. He's the guy who really straddles old Hollywood and new Hollywood. He's one of the few who made that transition really well to being sort of getting a start in the old studio system and becoming one of the absolute megastars of the 60s. He kind of took that, uh, you know, James Dean, wearing his emotions uh, on his sleeve, sort of method acting, and, and rode that through into into the new Hollywood era. Race card Race it through. Race card it through. But this episode isn't about Paul Newman. Screw Paul <laughs> No, yeah, the real star of the show today is actually, in fact, his equally talented wife, Joanne Woodward. Yeah, she's great. You're all probably a lot less familiar with her work than uh, than Paul's. It was true for us, for sure. So we decided, you know, Paul Newman, he made uh, 19 movies in, in the 60s, I think. So that's, that's a lot to tackle in one episode. Joanne uh, just made 10, and that seemed a little more reasonable. So combined, the two of them made 25 films in the 60s. Six starring just Joanne, 15 starring just Paul, and four starring the both of them. We are going to concentrate on the, on the movies that have the both of them in it. So we satisfy uh, you know, fans' needs for the Paul Newman, but we also get to talk about the wonderful Joanne Woodward primarily in this episode. There's also a film starring Joanne directed by Paul Newman that, uh, that we will be discussing as well in, in great detail. But otherwise, we're just going to take uh, you know tour of the 60s and, and tell you about what Joanne was doing during those years where she was making half as many films as her more famous husband, but doing an awfully good job in all of them. She's pretty damn prolific anyhow. I didn't, I really didn't, and yeah, this is definitely blind. I was blinded by Paul Newman's baby blue eyes and and never really paid as much attention to her films and that was that was a fool's error because I uh, really enjoyed what I saw of all of these and I did not realize how many movies she had been in yeah I mean they both had kind of really parallel careers in the 50s they both did a lot of stage and tv work then in the mid in the middle of the decade uh, they got their first feature films, uh, The Silver Chalice for, uh, for Paul Newman, Count Three and Pray for, uh, for Joanne Woodward. And they kind of, you know, just consistently got leading roles for a long time after that, didn't really go back into TV. Paul Newman stayed a movie star. Joanne went back into doing a lot of TV movies and things in the 70s. But in the 60s, they were just movie stars. 
their movies were were popular. It was always an event when they starred in something together, which doesn't mean that everything that they were in together was a big hit, but there was always some excitement, some buzz going on. I wouldn't even say that the movies they starred in together are uh, their best movies. <laughs> they, they made some pretty bad movies together, quite frankly. Um, but uh, in, in 1958, they made The Long Hot Summer together. I think they, they had run into each other on stage on Broadway at some point um, before that, but they reconnected on The Long Hot Summer. Martin Ritt, uh, based on several William Faulkner stories. Joanne Woodward had already gotten a lot of attention the year before for Three Faces of Eve, where she plays a person with split personality, three personalities, in fact. She sort of got more more critical attention than Paul did earlier on, but he got a lot of attention for The Long Hot Summer. I think he got an Academy Award or a nomination for that, but they uh, the sparks flew on, on that uh, on that set. Paul Newman was already married, but he... I don't know. I'm I'm not the I'm not the guy who who, who digs into the dirt with, with these celebrities. I'm I'm not sure if Jenna did much digging into it, but uh, Paul divorced his first wife, got together with Joanne, and they were married for 50 years and starred in a lot of movies together. After Long Hot Summer, they made Rally Around the Flag Boys together, which was a Leo McCary movie that was not particularly good. <laughs> and then the 60s rolled around. They both had, had pretty impressive careers individually and together. Started out 1960 with Joanne making The Fugitive Kind, which we actually have discussed already on a previous episode. The uh, Tennessee Williams episode. Yeah, which I've already mentioned. We've talked about both of these cats individually on the Tennessee Williams episode. And, and in that, she plays Carol Coutrere, who's the town drunk who sleeps around. She's got a bad reputation. She may be sleeping with her brother, and she's fantastic in it. She comes from the world that, that Marlon Brando's character was, was from. She's a party girl. He was a party guy, and so you think they're going to hit it off, but uh, the love story doesn't end up being about the two of them at all, but she still makes a big impression in that movie. But then later in 1960, she and Paul made From the Terrace together. From the Terrace, <laughs> directed by Mark Robson. I'm going to start with this movie. This is a weird, this is a weird, long, very, very long epic. Tedious, even. <laughs> <laughs> this is a movie about a terrible father who owns a steel <laughs> mill. <laughs> his wife is a total drunk. Uh, Myrna Loy is his wife, which is kind of cool. Uh, and, and Leon... Doing an amazing Shelley Winters impersonation <laughs> yeah. in this movie. And uh, Leon Ames is is this terrible husband. And, and this whole movie is told in like really awful expository dialogue. The first thing you see is Mr. Eaton, this owner of a steel mill, and he fires his chauffeur for standing up for Eaton's own son, who's named Alfred, which is Paul Newman, who is coming back from the war 
World War II. The chauffeur gets fired because he's standing up for like, well, I, I don't understand why you don't care about your son who just survived this war and you're just super angry because he didn't die like your other son, the older brother of spinal meningitis. And now you're taking it out on the one that did survive and you should love him and you don't love him. And Eaton Sr. is like, you're fired. <laughs> you're fired. <laughs> so, uh, you know, he's that kind of father. Which, of course, you know, is, is partially driving his mother to drink, so fair enough. And once Paul Newman gets home, once Alfred gets home, he expects all of this, and he gets it. He doesn't expect that his mother is actually cheating on his father, and then he goes out there and slugs the guy that she's been cheating with. But that decides it for him. He's like, I want out of this, you know, family. I'm going to go make my own fortune. I don't care. Whatever. So he has this, like, buddy, his buddy Lex who he decides he's going to strike out and, and create some sort of like airplane. They're like designing airplanes, right? Mm -hmm. An airplane empire. <laughs> as opposed to the steel mill, which he just doesn't want to, he, you know, he's meant to be the heir, of, of course, as the only surviving son. He doesn't want it. So he goes to a party where he meets Mary St. John, which is the greatest wasp princess name I've ever heard, who is Joanne Woodward. Uh, who honestly, like, her face is just too thoughtful to be this kind of character. It should have been a Gwyneth Paltrow. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't, I'm trying to think of who that would have been in the 60s. But like, there there were many, there were many throwaway blondes that looked like this kind of lady. But, but instead, it's... Audrey Hepburn, maybe. No, she's too, she's too sweet. This should have been someone more like severe, like beautiful, but severe. But anyhow, she is like way, she's old money fancy. She has this like engagement to this doctor and then Alfred comes along and he's a bit more swaggering and a little more aggressive and she likes that. And even though the family thinks that, you know, he's, oh, what a disgusting working class millionaire he is <laughs> from his uh, steel mill family. So his fam her family hates him, but uh, she decides that they're going to get married. And on their wedding day, the father dies and they, uh, Alfred has this like, you know, chat with him and where he basically admits that he doesn't love anyone except for his dead son and he hates his wife and he hates his living son. And he, and he like dies of a heart attack before he even like will call Alfred his son. You know, it's like one of these things he's like, wait, maybe I have regrets, you know, and then he just drops dead. So basically this whole movie from here on out is kind of about Alfred striking out on his own and trying to figure things out and then becoming a, a complete workaholic. Uh, actually, there's, <laughs> I forgot, I forgot there's more melodrama that, that we have to uh, include, which is that he's driving home from a, a party with Mary and they see a small boy fall through a pond, a nice pond. So Alfred jumps into the water and, and saves him. And it turns out that the boy's grandfather is like even more <laughs> rich and famous. He's a financier. And uh, they invite the two of them to dinner. And, and you know, he's a businessy businessman and, and says, I like the cut of your jib. And, uh, you know, actually, I think you'd be great in investment. And so he ends up becoming like, you know, the right hand man of this investment firm. Yeah, and so Alfred just, like, leans into this workaholism, which, of course, alienates his wife. Then, you know, after he has everything he's ever wanted, including the beautiful wife and all of the money, and he realizes he's not happy, and then he goes to Pennsylvania to, like, bankrupt an entire town or something. I don't know, something nefariously financial. And um, 
the he meets uh natalie who's ina balen and this is just like you know this this little you know country mouse and and he realizes that actually this is what i want and then has a crisis of faith and so that's what this three-hour epic is (laughs) from the terrace this is this is boy (laughs) this is bullshit Go on, tell us how you tell us how you really feel. Well, you know what? I'm I'm never gonna like one of these poor little rich boy movies, no matter how good it is. On top of it being about that, it's it actually really sucks. <laughs> so, yeah, I had a lot of trouble getting through this movie. It, uh, yeah, and the dialogue um, is. Is terrible. It's so on the nose. It's so expository, especially you know when he meets Natalie, the love of his life, and uh, and she, you know, you're supposed to think that she's amazing, but she just spouts this like pseudo philosophical <laughs> dialogue, like I never lived until I met you, and this moment that we've spent together, I'll remember for the rest of my life, and. It's terrible. See, I actually feel like this stuff with Natalie was the best of this movie, but only because this movie wants so badly to be a Douglas Sirk movie, but it can't be bothered to deal with silly things like women's feelings <laughs> or, you know, emotion. And so when the the two of those characters get together, they actually have this woe is me pity party that I thought was the, the closest this gets to any sort of actual emotion. They're just talking about how miserable they are all the time. And like, he's miserable because he has everything. And she's miserable because you were the best thing that's ever happened to me for the five seconds, even though we're together right now and we can't live in the moment. It's like the two of them are like, they bond over misery. Like she seems depressed and he seems, you know, lost. And that was kind of interesting. I kind of like was into that. Like, I actually think that like his desire, there's this line, I I wrote it down because it was just, it was so cheesy. I was lost in the desert and then I walked into a house where there was warmth. But I thought that was actually, that's like a a legitimate part of this movie is this idea that, you know, this guy who never had love and then he walks into a home that actually with a loving family that, you know, actually enjoys each other's company and realizes like, oh, like that's, that's what would be fun, you know, like is something that like he didn't realize even existed. You know, it had this actually played that up in any possible way, this could have been actually more interesting if it had focused on this aspect of it. But instead, it focuses on the workaholism. And that's the weirdest part about this. It, it focuses on like <laughs> 60s businessmen doing business and how important business is. It counts on us really caring that he becomes a successful businessman. And uh, maybe 60s audiences really did care about that stuff. I sure didn't. <laughs> But you're right. I mean, the Natalie stuff is the closest this movie comes to being about actual human beings. But unfortunately, it doesn't doesn't quite get there. I actually thought the funnest part of this movie was Joanne Woodward being kind of a femme fatale. I I don't think she's ever really I can't think of another role like that where she's actually the, the evil, manipulative, treacherous woman. I mean, I guess it doesn't go that far that she sort of, you know, resembles an actual human being. No, no, she doesn't. She just turns into an awful person when Paul Newman is ignoring her for long stretches of time. And, you know, she takes up with her 
ex-fiance and they, you know, they're, they're just going around town. Like every, it's sort of an open affair. Everybody knows about it. And Paul Newman is upset about it, but isn't allowed to divorce her because his financier boss is like, nope, that, that shows a lack of morality if you divorce your wife. Right. Yeah. He, he won't allow him to be employed if he has a divorce. Yeah. I mean, at that point, you see exactly where this movie is headed but it takes another hour to get there. I, You know, the thing, so I, I agree with you. Joanne Woodward is is really kind of awesome in this. Also insanely horny. <laughs> There's so much horny dialogue in this. Like from the whole part with the mother, which I thought was really interesting and then gets like completely dropped. We never see like Myrna Loy again. Yeah. And she was a really interesting, like I thought this was like setting something up for something that would come back around and be this like continual theme. And it just like, is totally throwaway and bizarre. It feels like a waste of the first hour <laughs> of this movie. But I guess we we sort of get like it, it. It's introduced only to become a parallel for what happens with Mary, which is Alfred in in trying to be the opposite of his father becomes exactly the same man as his father as far as putting work before family and then driving his wife into the arms of another man. But it's kind of legit. I mean, like, I, you know, she's she is kind of evil in this, but she's sympathetic. And the movie never actually, you know, but all of these movies, I think, as we go through, it's, it's really rare that we get a movie that's sympathetic to the woman who's been left alone. You know, it's like as if they think that being alone is like not really that hard of a cross to bear, which I think is unfair. I mean, yes, there are much worse things in this world than than merely being lonely because your husband is working all the time. But that's also a major part of, you know, a relationship is to feel like you're actually in a relationship. So it's like I, I feel for the women in the in these movies and I actually think that, you know, I, I don't don't know if I condone cheating so much, especially when you're married. But um, I think that for her to go to somebody else to get something like that is, is fairly reasonable, <laughs> considering it's not like he knew. It's not like he cared. He never at one point asks her. He never thinks that actually maybe I should, uh, you know, bare minimum spend some time with my wife. So it's like she's treated as a villain, but I don't think she's really that villainous as far as that goes. No. I think he's kind of a bastard. Yeah, but she also takes so much glee in cheating on him and being horrible to him. That, that, right, uh, and she gets vicious. Yeah. It's an instance where this movie strays away from like actual human behavior and becomes more fun rather than less fun, which I'm okay with. We, we sort of revisit this same exact plot line that you're talking about at the end of the 60s with a much more yes. sympathetic portrayal <laughs> of the cheating wife but we'll, we'll get to that yeah perfect bookend yeah really really bookending the decade with uh with sort of two versions of the same story but also in 1960 paul newman made his epic with otto preminger about the founding of uh israel exodus uh based on the leon uris novel and then he followed that up with the hustler in 1961 um then after that the two of them reunited paul and joanne made Harris Blues together, uh, also starring Sidney Poitier and Diane Carroll. <laughs> Jim, David, 
this movie, they're reunited with the director of their last good movie together, Martin Ritt. He directed Long Hot Summer. And I really like this movie. I mean, it's it's really, there's not a whole lot of plot to it, but it's really kind of got great atmosphere. It's set in Paris, shot in black and white, about these two jazz musicians. Sidney Poitier is, uh, is Eddie. He's a saxophonist. And Paul Newman is a trombonist. He's Ramboan. Ramboan. <laughs> He's he's Arthur Rambowen. And he um he's not satisfied just playing the music. He wants to be a great composer as well. So, you know, we've got Paul Newman in workaholic mode again, where his career comes before any romance, which arrives in the form of Dion Carroll and Joanne Woodward, two American friends who come to Paris just for a couple week vacation, maybe a three week vacation, and coming from small town America. Apparently in the original novel, and you get a hint of this maybe being where the plot was headed in the movie, it's Connie, the black woman, who ends up with uh, Ram, the white musician, and Lillian, played by Joan Woodward, the white woman ending up with Eddie, the black musician. The producers of this movie were, were not brave enough to go there. That's, that's disappointing, but I also think it ended up being a pretty engaging movie nonetheless, having Dion Carroll as an activist in the United States who is kind of upset with uh, with Eddie because he's sort of hiding out in Paris where black people are treated as equals uh, so that he doesn't have to deal with the inequality in America. She, she says that's a cop-out. They connect really strongly and have a nice romantic time in Paris, but she continues to give him a hard time about that, and he fights it saying, no, I can't go back to that, I can't go back to that. But, you know, she wants him to come back to America, you know, to live with her, to for them to get married and he doesn't want to do that and Lillian she again is the uh you know plays the really horny woman and uh she just sees takes one look at Ram wants to get him in bed she's the one who sort of pushes Connie to to go to the jazz club and see them play and she just will not lay off Ram until uh until they go back to his room and sleep together her her lust turns into love and Ram you know really enjoys being with her so we get a lot of just Romantic hand-holding through the streets of Paris. The two couples, you know, off on their own doing Paris things. And they'll, you know, they'll occasionally run into each other on the street and say, hey, how's it going? And go off together, you know, and do some things together. And so a lot of it is just sort of atmospheric. There's not a whole lot going on. There's one, Louis Armstrong plays Wild Man Moore, who is basically just Louis Armstrong playing himself, and he uh, he shows up in Paris, and and the whole town is excited, and he shows up in Eddie and uh, Ram's club, and with his whole band, and there's a jazz duel that's super exciting. It, it you know it just takes up an, a nice chunk of time, and it's Armstrong and his band in the audience, like playing at Ram and Eddie's band. Everybody takes turns taking solos. It's really clear that Louis Armstrong's the only one who actually knows how to play his instrument. A lot of the actors pretending to be musicians in this are not very good at <laughs> at playing along. But, you know, if you ignore that, it's a, it's a really exciting scene, kind of the, it's the centerpiece of this movie. Then the, the two couples have to decide what their future is. Ram doesn't, doesn't want to go to America with Lillian because he wants to stay in Paris and concentrate on his career. He thinks he's really getting somewhere. He's written this piece that he thinks is going to get you know, published and he's going to become a big, a big thing in the Paris music scene that drives him more than any kind of romance you're making me realize like so many of these movies are about paul newman being a workaholic yeah (laughs) 
I'm like only realizing this right now. Yeah, I mean, the best part of this is definitely when they're showing you how thrilling it is to be a jazz musician in the 60s in Paris. The joy of music and the joy of being a part of something like that and the high that you get. That's really the best part of this. You know, to me, the, the, the biggest flaw with this, which I like this movie a lot, but biggest flaw for me is just the fact that in comparison, the love stories are like, they never reach the heights that the music reaches as far as happiness goes. So, you know, the, it, it kind of like does the women dirty in that sense because all they're here for is to sort of chase this idea of love and then like lasso these guys and bring them down to earth. But it feels like a shame, number one, to be like, well, oh, I see you're really enjoying Paris, uh, you know, living as a famous jazz musician. Why don't you come back to America? <laughs> and be nobody. Watch my two children and then get like beaten up by racists or something mm -hmm. like all the conversations between Sidney Poitier and, and Diane Carroll uh, are more interesting because it's this struggle of her saying, as, as Connie to Eddie saying, you're letting down your fellow Americans by escaping to, to France, where they still see you as a black man. And they're just less overtly racist, but they're just as racist here. And, you know, his, his point back is being like, well, here I'm a musician and there I'm a black, you know, I'm a Negro musician. So it's you know, that I thought that was a really interesting kind of push and pull because she has this sort of political slant behind it. Uh, whereas the stuff with Ram and Lillian, I liked Lillian because Joanne Woodward, again, is very charming in this. You know, I don't really understand, honestly, why she goes for Ram because he's a total prick. <laughs> <laughs> but he's Paul Newman. I mean, yeah, yeah, like, yeah, you know. But it's her sort of convincing him to come back with her and like raise her two kids uh, in, I don't know, like Indiana or whatever. <laughs> where is she from? I don't remember. I don't know. She's she's always a Georgia girl to me, no matter where she's supposed to be from in her movies. Yeah. But I did, I really like, there's a scene in the end where he essentially chooses music over her and she stands up for herself in a really cool way. She really like drives this knife into him. And, and instead of just accepting that this wasn't, you know, like first she sees like it's a fling and then she's like, maybe this could be more. And he's like, maybe it is more. No, it's a fling. And this back and forth. And so she says, you know what? Screw you. And she just says, like, you're never going to forget me. You're going to you're going to see me forever, no matter where you go. And and this sort of no one's going to ever be as right for you as I am. And it's just like, boom, now I'm leaving the country. And I'm like, damn, girl. <laughs> It was that was really satisfying because he kind of needs this like slap on the face because he's such a, you know, self-centered person. Um, so I kind of enjoyed that aspect. But then I mean, but it also follows a line where she's saying like, you know, it's been forever since I wanted to cook and clean for somebody. That means it's it's real love. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is a it's a good role for her because she's supposed to be attractive enough that this, you know, that Paul Newman would go for her and, and fall in love with her. But she's. You know, there's something about Joanne Woodward where she's so, like, she's such a real person that, you know, she can't play glamorous, like you were saying about, you know. Yeah. From the terrace, where, you know, she has to be, like, just an attractive, regular person. That's sort of what, I, I think she's so good at getting us inside her head and, you know, being, you know, really relatable that she can't, she can't really play aloof. Like, that's, she shouldn't be cast in that kind of role. She's... She has to be the this, this sympathetic character. She has to be the one who, you know, we're seeing through her eyes because she is so relatable. But, uh, yeah, the more it leans into her glamour, the less 
the less they're getting out of Joanne Woodward, I think. But she's, yeah, just sort of the a regular school marm uh, who is perhaps a bit more attractive than you, you, you would think of, a, you know, just an average school marm. But uh, that's Joanne. That's... Uh, that's that's the kind of thing you like to see her do. And I think that's also, I mean, that's the fact that she is like she's living her whole life for other people. You know, she's a teacher and then she wants to be with him because she feels like she's somebody when she's around Ram Rambowen. Can't get over that name. Um, whereas like when it comes to Connie, you know, she's also not like I mean, I mean, she's really attractive but she's not like a prize as far as like leaving like you know your passion as a jazz musician in like this entire country to go back to america for but um the fact that she sort of has this political angle and and convinces sydney portier more about it's slightly for a greater cause than only me it's like come back with me because you love me but also come back so that you can show all these you know <laughs> bastards that you know that you're worth something play the game on hard mode as it were as as <laughs> i a child of the 80s say but um that to me was a little more it was it was just it was the better story and then of course you know this is focused on the two white people falling in love and and again joanne woodward does a really good job paul newman it does a good job even as a bastard. And- I think it I think it does a pretty good job of explaining why these musicians would be tempted by each of these women to leave. Like Ram is into Lillian just because he's having a good time. There's not even a chance that he would go back to America with him. Like he would never consider it for a second, except that he gets like rejected by the music publisher. And then he has this sort of crisis of, of confidence and is like, oh, I suck, I suck. I, I'll, I guess I'll just go back to America with you. So that, like, I sort of buy his reason. Like, she, she'd never had any kind of convincing argument for him to go back to America, but you sort of see why he decides to in that moment. Whereas I, I feel like Connie and Eddie, like, Connie is, you know, passionate about her cause and she is so passionate that she gets Eddie to really see that, oh, yeah, I am really hiding away from my problems here. I am just dealing with the racism and segregation and, and you know oppression of my people by by running away from it. And you see why he is thinking maybe I should go back. And plus she is far more glamorous than Joanne Woodward is. Yeah. Deanne Carroll. And uh, and so there is this thing like up above everything. Like she looks like a prize in, in a way that Joanne Woodward doesn't so i think she plays that role really well and plus she's also she's a goody goody not like lillian who's in paris just to get laid like she's there to to see connie's there to see the sights and it's sort of by accident not by intention that she falls for this guy so i i think the love stories work even if they're not developed i think they're developed just enough to be interesting it is cool how Lillian becomes she she's the character that nobody really expects like she's much more free and, and open than any of the men uh, presume her to be and even the audience i think presumes her to be she's a lot chiller <laughs> than than your typical uh you know 60s uh lady the the whole thing with ram being staunchly anti-drug is kind of interesting in a way there's a whole side plot about heroin that happens here and i don't totally know what to make of it other than it's like semi-anti-drug yeah, so it's kind of probably why Ram's music doesn't fly, you know. <laughs> well, but, I thought um, there was just commentary on how many great musicians' lives and careers were ruined by getting hooked on junk, and and Ram's 
doesn't Ram doesn't want his guitar player to go down that route. I think the uh, the actor playing the gypsy guitar player is uh, is a pretty engaging performer. I didn't I didn't write down his name, but uh, he's not that good at pretending to play guitar. But he I, I like him as an actor. So after this, Paul did a, a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, in 1962, he came out with Sweet Bird of Youth and smaller role in Hemingway's Adventures of a Young Man. Uh, 63, he did Hood and The Prize, and then starred in. A New Kind of Love with Joanne Woodward. If the nightingales could sing like you, sing much sweeter than they do, cause you brought a new kind of love to me. A New Kind of Love, directed by Melville Shavelson. People have great names, don't they? Yeah, but this guy couldn't have a better name. So trapped in a generation that isn't this one. <laughs> 1963, um, you said that, I think. I kind of liked this one, and Bart hates this one. So here's the... <laughs> that was Bart's entire review. Bart will be uh, replaced by a whoopee cushion for this section. The plot of this movie is Samantha, Sam, played by Joanne Woodward. She is, there. there there's some word for this, and I should have written it down uh, in the movie. Like, they, they introduce her. It starts off with this, like, whole cattle call of women shopping kind of thing. And, you're, and it only gets more misogynistic from there. But there's, there's two movies happening in this movie. And um, Sam is a fashion designer, but she is not a hot fashion designer. She is a bootleg fashion designer uh, and she works for like, you know, the cheaper uh, department stores. And her job is to go around to all of the fancy department stores, see what's there and then copy the designs and then figure out a way to make them for dramatically less money and cheaper cloth and all of that sort of stuff so she is is much hated by all of the the real fashionista people because she's known as as the one who comes around and rips everything off but meanwhile she is you know the star of her department store because she does a great job at it and sam is oh my god she is a tomboy (laughs) short hair and she wears pants and um, she smokes a cigarette and she has really cool sunglasses and she's kind of awesome. She's actually, I think Joanne Woodward had a, a absolute ball playing this role because she really leans into it, uh, you know, act, acting like a man. But but it, all that means so is So many just, hilarious jokes about uh, her being mistaken for a man. Yeah, I mean, then you know, it's it, the, this movie... It's a it's a comedy this movie, um, but uh, its sense of humor uh, it misses the mark more often than it than it hits. Though I did say I did laugh out loud. There's one scene in this that made me laugh out loud, and that is when Paul Newman, whose name is Steve, he is this like womanizing uh, reporter, sports reporter, and he gets caught sleeping with his boss's wife. Very overtly and so he gets you know and and then he's the boss is like you're fired he's like you can't fire me i got a contract i'm in a union 
So the boss says, fine, I'm sending you to, to Paris to start the French dispatch. No, I'm sending you to Paris. Just get out of my hair. Which is the one line that made me laugh is when the boss says, you're leaving for our office in Paris. Well, you'll probably, and I hope, kill yourself. <laughs> um, so he ends up in Paris where uh, Sam has just flown as well because she is there with her office, which includes uh, Thelma Ritter and um, who? who's the other guy? Marvin Kaplan, I think. Uh, yeah, who... If if there's anything funny in this movie, it's Marvin Kaplan. He's the guy. He's he's. Oh just no, he's the, he's yeah. He's, he's he's the nerdy. He's the friend of of Paul Newman. Right. I, yeah. I guess he's already. He's an American who's already in Paris. George Tobias is who I was thinking. He's the boss. He's he's Sam's boss. But yes, Marvin Kaplan's also very funny. He's doing his best like Woody Allen before Woody Allen's a thing. Yeah, you know him as the like nerdy teacher in every '80s movie. But he's got a he's got a good nerdy '60s guy shtick going on. He, he made me chuckle a couple times, I guess. And so th- they're all going to Paris. Um, you know, Paul Newman's being uh, Steve is being sent there to be exiled, whereas Sam is going with her little office to study the the newest in fashion, so that they can rip it off and bring it back to America. And they meet it. They have a you know a bit of a meet cute on the plane where um, Sam gets mistaken for a man multiple times. Uh, Hilariously. Oh so oh so funny. Um, you she kind. I mean like in the the first thing when it's like from behind she's wearing like a suit and she has short hair. Okay, I could see that one. And then it keeps it like it it happens so many times or it's like okay enough. I don't know what happens in Paris. In in Paris, like... It just goes downhill from there. (laughs) (laughs) There's something... There's some day in Paris where uh, all of the single ladies um, storm the streets and, I don't know, St. Catherine, was it? Yeah, that sounds right. St. Catherine Day. It's like the day where uh, Maurice Chevalier comes out and dances on a table. (laughs) (laughs) And... um, Lena Thelma Ritter, who is, you know, plays the older secretary of the boss, who's also older. And he's, of course, going off with Eva Gabor. Yeah, Eva Gabor. That's the right. Countess. <laughs> yeah, she just plays like, you know, she's there to, to show them Paris. And so he's just wolf whistling after her. And and uh, Lena is pissed off about that. And so she goes to Sam. She's like, you're young and beautiful. Like, what the hell? Like, why don't, why don't you go go get a man and and um sam oh sam is a semi-virgin by the way Mm -hmm. she tried love once and then gave it up so she like had her heart broken once and then and sounds like she i guess she slept with the guy is that i don't know they never they're never explicit what a semi-virgin means but um that's my interpretation is that she you know once once gave it all for love and then regretted it because he he dumped her and now she will never date ever again and so when she gets to Paris and she she sees Steve gallivanting around with women, she starts to feel really bad about herself. And here's Paris, the land of fashion and love and yada, yada. And then St. Catherine Day happens where all these, you know, the single ladies go around and, and uh, say a prayer to St. Catherine where she has like a hallucination in which St. Catherine's like, Go get laid, girl. And basically, then she decides to get a um, complete, like, she has a breakdown and, and gets a complete feminine makeover, which in, in amazing montage scene in which she gets fem- feminized, really crazy blonde wig. She gets, like, a 
all this makeup and these skin things and all this clothing and uh, immediately she gets mistaken for a high-class prostitute by Steve who gets conned by some random French guy who says, hey, man, I see you're American. You, you want to have a fun night out? And then you see that lady over there? Like, yeah, I own her. He's like, actually, I'm a reporter. And I don't know, there's something about he'd rather just talk to a prostitute and get a scoop as opposed to sleeping with her. And so he pays this guy to go talk to someone. The guy doesn't know her. He's just conning him out of money. And then it turns into this whole, like, suddenly, um, you know, Joanne Woodward's Sam, she realizes a little bit what's happening and she comes up with this persona called Mimi, which is like the body a hooker with a heart of gold kind of persona where she sits there and regales him with all of these tales about, like, all the crazy nights out that she's had, which then sp- turns into Steve having, like, a really popular um, column because, you know, he got sent to Paris because they thought he was going to get fired and... Anyhow, so so that's the plot. There, there it is. It's, I, I've been talking too long, but it <laughs> is that J- Sam is both this tomboy and this high class prostitute persona, and then she's trying to figure out. She starts to fall for Steve, and he starts to kind of like fall for her when he sees her as a prostitute. <laughs> Here's another case where Paul Newman's character is the absolute worst, and you have no idea why she would fall for him, except that he's Paul Newman and there's, you know, there's no getting around that. <laughs> like otherwise, if he weren't just beautiful Paul Newman, there'd be nothing at all to this guy that would be appealing to anybody. He's a sports writer. And that's why being sent to Paris is a nightmare because there's, there are no sports in Paris. What soccer, that's not a real sport as, as far as he's concerned. And, and so this, this hit column that he's writing is like all it's it's talking about Mimi, uh, Mimi's uh, romantic adventures that she's all making up on the spot, and uh, but he it's all written in sports metaphors, and it's miserable. And you get to see these like fantasy dream sequences where Paul Newman is a cyclist or a, a soccer goalie, and you get to see these sex metaphors being played out on on soccer fields, and it's so. It is not even a little bit funny now, and I can't imagine at the time anyone would have been amused by it. Like this Melville Shavelson, who you know wrote, directed, produced, starred, well, didn't star, but did everything for this movie, is just clearly not you know, anyone who could speak to the young people of the 60s. So like, I can't imagine anybody was amused by this film except for like older people who came to see these, you know, attractive Hollywood stars making, you know, semi-risque jokes. It's it's terrible. And Jenna. Jenna's the other person. <laughs> and it's just so out of touch. Like, that's that's what got me. It's like... <sighs> I mean, the problem with this is that, it, again, it, it's written by a man for men, and that's the biggest issue here because the, the shining star is Joanne Woodward, and she's so good, and I like her character a lot. She ends up being like the butt of all the jokes, and yet it's very clear that the movie thinks she's attractive and nice, but if only she, like, let her hair down. You know what I mean? It's like it's very patronizing towards her, and yet Joanne Woodward is just so charming, and she plays this part so realistically that I couldn't help but really, like, get into her character. Like, this idea of her being someone who has to choose between joining up with the god-awful 60s gender role society 
where you're completely, you know, just, just a thing to, <laughs> to, to hang off of your husband's arm, uh, or you're nothing. You're literally just like, you know, scraps if you're not, if you're not hanging off your husband's arm or being like supremely lonely for the rest of her life. It's understandable. You know, like I actually, I think it's really understandable that her character would go from being somebody who had it all as far as her career and was doing fine. But then, you know, she wants, she wants a partner. It's, it's, it's not winning any feminist awards, but, (laughs) but it feels real. And I don't, I think it's really just because she's so genuine, you know, she really pulls it off. Like there's this great scene in the end where he finally, you know, Steve figures out everything. He tries to set her up, which of course, again, it goes back to like, you know, this is just such an awful way to, to go about this, where he basically, because he figures out what's happening, his his immediate reaction instead of confronting her is to, uh, you know, embarrass her. So he has to set her up for this date where he basically says like, you know, eh, Mimi, you know, we've been talking. Uh, how about we actually bone for once? And Sam realizes, you know what, screw it. Like, maybe this is what I want. You know, this is, I, I, I've been enjoying this freedom of, of being this, this like more forward woman. And maybe I can incorporate part of this into my real life. And, you know, so she like now has to reckon with being somebody who is, is very uptight and, you know, not interested in one night stands, which would have been the, you know, the norm of, of the sixties really, as far as like, you know, respectable women goes, you know, or, or indulging herself and she has this line too where she's like i'm a grown woman i don't have anything to feel ashamed of when he's sitting there trying to shame her he's like aren't you ashamed that you're naked right now and she's like no (laughs) and i i like that like i i get the sense that this is like what's his name that old melville he must have like met some girl that was sort of like similar to this and then found her very attractive and like tried to work this into you know, like, let, let me try and, like, capture that energy, but also, like, he can't, like, reconcile that with, like, his misogynistic 60s man brain. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, like, the whole thing is such a... I would love to see an update of this rewritten by a woman that, like, got better, had a way better sense of humor and also gave Paul Newman more of an arc of realizing, oh, I'm being a really horrible person. You know what I mean? Like, but but still a comedy. Yeah, I... I mean, it's not like the setup for this movie is terrible. It's just a terrible movie. There, somebody could have made a, a a decent movie out of it, but it wasn't it wasn't Melville. The way you were talking about uh, Joanne's arc, about how uh, how Paul Newman tries to hum- humiliate her at the end, really reminds me of that that Anne Margaret movie we watched, where she's I think it's Tony Franciosa's. Right. Like, she's pretending to be a slut, and he's like, "Okay, now prove it." And it turns like totally rapey, and that's that's kind of the same thing this movie does, and uh, and it's gross. That one was worse as far <laughs> as the rapiness, because he like straight up kidnaps her and then tries to rape her, whereas this one he is more like cornering her and then like giving her a bunch of alcohol. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> and, okay, right. maybe they're the same. <laughs> no, it's really it is uh, the, the misogyny in this is like off the charts. It's actually insane, and it and it's played through so casually that. Uh, it, I can understand why this is just like not watchable for the vast majority of people, especially now. But I don't, Joanne Woodward just was so charming. Like she was an she was an interesting character to me as far as her tomboyishness, as they call it in this. Like I I really liked seeing her just like have a ball. She made a lot of bad movies, but every single one of them is better for having her in it. Plus all the crazy fashion shows, which were which were great actually. This has um. <laughs> This has Dior and uh, Cardan. 
who else was in it? Landvin or whatever. Lon- See, that's Lennon. that was the one thing about this movie where I was like, oh, maybe Jenna will actually kind of like this a little bit. <laughs> I, I had no idea you'd actually embrace the uh, the storyline and uh, and the characters as well. Look, here's the thing. I don't think this is a good movie. I enjoyed watching it, but I also enjoyed watching it because I think that I, I my filter, especially after doing Cinema 60 for this amount of time, my filter for horribly off the charts, god awful misogyny, like has only got grown stronger. So now I can like watch something and be like, oh, that, that's actually kind of a nice little detail when he almost rapes her. You know what I mean? Like it's this like I've managed <laughs> to really block out the the horrendousness of this and uh and it is you're right it's awful like there's so many there's so many awful parts of this but to me it also just feels like it feels like a necessary evil to witness in a way like it feels like there's like two minds of it one is like the the female interpretation of this even at the time where you would be like this is just so disgusting but you know here's how you kind of like deal through like here's how you trudge through the muck and mire of it and then like the male interpretation of just like Oh, women? Huh? They exist? I didn't know that. I just thought... <laughs> you know, it's like there's this weird... There's just like so many mindsets to get in when you watch these kind of crappy movies. <laughs> yeah, I guess this was unusual in that it does, you know, spend some time having you get to know Joanne Woodward's character. So, you know, usually you don't have the luxury of ever getting to know the female very well in these in these sleazy 60s sexist movies. But I wouldn't, yeah, it's not It's not a good movie. But if you like fashion, you should. <laughs> <laughs> well, also in 1963, I wanted to just mention Joanne Woodward did a movie called The Stripper, which, uh, which Jenna didn't watch, but I watched it just to get a, a sense of what it was. It's the first film by Franklin J. Schaffner, who went on to do like uh, Planet of the Apes and Patton and stuff. So he's a pretty respected director. And it's based on William Inge play. So it's got that same storyline that he uses over and over where it's all about sexual repression and then the characters actually have sex and it ruins everything for everybody. This is another one of those. Joan Woodward plays, she's kind of a Marilyn Monroe type. She's actually a really sympathetic, sweet, little bit vapid person who tried to make it in Hollywood and couldn't and uh, you know ends up back in her hometown and runs into the uh, the boy that she used to babysit when she lived next door played by Richard Beamer of West Side Story and uh, and Twin Peaks and he just falls madly in love with her this mature sexy woman and she ends up having to to live at their house because his mother his father's died and his his mother you know remembers her really fondly and and uh, she's sort of stranded in this town because her her manager has abandoned her there yeah it's just this like it's richard beamer the whole time wanting to do it with lila so bad and then when he he finally does he he ruins both of their lives i actually think that joan woodward is really good in this movie she does this sort of you know not so smart girl next door sex pot thing really well and uh you know it's not splendor in the grass but it uh it's sort of a a low rent version of that and i recommend it i think it's pretty good joan seems to have really enjoyed playing a prostitute yeah She's not afraid of sex in any of her movies, which I think is cool. I mean, at the beginning of New Kind of Love, I guess she is, but then she has a good time playing a fake prostitute in the second half of that movie. But yeah, that's another pro in the Joanne Woodward column is 
like she's demonstrates in all her movies that uh, that that women can have a sex drive too. And I I like that about her. Yeah. This movie's called The Stripper, but that title doesn't really play off until the the final scenes of this movie. There's there there are no strippers in it until the very end, where her her life is uh, has gone so downhill that she's she's forced into that profession. So you don't expect a lot of flesh in this movie if you go into to it because uh, it's called the the Stripper and expect that. Uh, and uh, actually, uh, Gypsy Rose Lee has a has a small role in this too i guess that's she doesn't play a stripper but uh, but she's in it so i guess that's another after this in 1964 paul had a couple of movies the outrage which is a remake of rashomon as a western and uh he's got one of the storylines in what a way to go which i know is a movie you're really fond of so good <laughs> paul newman gets killed by robots in that movie and <laughs> If that doesn't make you want to watch it. And th- and that's not even the best part of the movie. But uh, Joanne also had a film that came out in 64, and that was Signpost to Murder, which you watched. Signpost to Murder was interesting. It's, it's, it's a, I'd say it is a slight but interesting movie. This is directed by George England, who directed Zachariah. Oh, yeah. 1971. What a film. I actually enjoy that. If you want to read... What I think about that movie, you go to back-row.com, type in Zachariah in the search bar, and you'll find something. But um, this one, it is uh, Joanne Woodward as a lonely housewife again, and Stuart Whitman, who plays an escaped convict. Stuart Whitman, who's, uh, I guess, I don't know, he was like in a lot of 50s stuff, right? 50s man? Yeah, I know the name, but I can't even put a face to it right now he has a weird face (laughs) (laughs) um but anyhow so he is he is an escaped convict from a mental institution not just any mental institution he like killed his wife previously and he's been trying to work his way up through his therapist this dr mark fleming who's played by uh edward mulher who you know is trying to get him free by saying you know i look, look the guy's done his time he has reformed he is good to go and when he goes up to against the you know the board of directors or whatever like they're like look if we let this guy go and he kills again like you know it's really bad pr <laughs> and he's like can you say with 100 percent certainty that that he's completely cured and is fine and you know dr fleming says well i can't say a hundred percent certainty of anything and they're like well keep him locked up so he goes back and tells alex hey didn't work out and then alex hits him over the head and breaks out <laughs> so escapes and part of the thing about alex is that from his room which i think is somewhere it's somewhere in england He's been like staring out at this village and he knows everybody. There's like a like a fenced off area, like a field at this place where he also like can interact with people who come by. The movie actually opens with a bunch of little kids as tourists, like, look at the loonies at the insane asylum. <laughs> <laughs> So anyhow, yeah, he he punches out the doctor. He leaves the asylum in his coat. He then runs off to this little house that he had been staring at, which was his favorite house in the whole village. And it is a baller house. This is a house that has a water mill right in the middle. It cuts through the middle of this house that looks otherwise like kind of like, it looks from the outside almost Tudor-esque, but on the inside, it looks a lot more like mid-century. Awesome house. 
and he breaks into it. He jumps on this wheel, uh, breaks into the window and hides out and then holds this woman captive who's Joanne Woodward playing this woman, Molly. And so the whole movie is about the two of them face off between her being held captive and him being a crazy person. She doesn't want to get murdered, but you know, all these police officers keep coming in. They're like, hey, just so you know, there's a crazy guy and, you know, he'd probably come here. The whole thing kind of unfolds sort of minute by minute as she's being held captive and they don't realize. And then there is a twist. There is a twist to this where she is actually not as innocent as you might think she is. And she keeps saying her husband's going to come home and then uh, he, he doesn't come home and she calls his airplane and, you know, oh, maybe the plane's delayed and then the... Alex, who, who's holding her hostage, sees a dead body floating in the water will. And um, so it gets hmm. it gets dark and mysterious. Uh, this is such a short movie and it's like kind of short and sweet. I don't even want to spoil it. It has a kind of a stupid twist at the like a, a last minute stupid twist, but it's fun. So I actually think you should check this one out if it, if it interests you. Signpost to murder. Hmm. That sounds all right. Better than I expected from uh, from the, the small plot synopsis I read. It's it's pretty minor, but but it's a good time. It's I I don't think it's much. I don't even think it's an hour and a half long. I think it's like an hour twenty or something. At that point, watch it twice. <laughs> so nineteen sixty five, Paul Newman made Lady L with uh, Sophia Loren, which Jenna has watched and I haven't. Uh, Joanne didn't do anything that year, but uh, the following year, sixty six, when Paul Newman made. Harper, his detective movie, and Torn Curtain with Alfred Hitchcock. Joanne made a couple of movies as well. I'm going to talk about A Big Hand for the Little Lady, which is a Western that's not really Western. It's set in the Old West, but it's about gambling, and it's about these four land baron guys who once a year come together for this huge, huge high-stakes poker game. Jason Robards is one of them. You know, Kevin McCarthy from Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Burgess Meredith is, plays the doctor, but he's not uh, he's not in the game. But he's he's sort of the town doctor who who comes in when uh, Henry Fonda, who is uh, just traveling through town with his wife, Joan Woodward, and their young son, sees that there's this high stakes poker game going on in the back room at this hotel that they're uh, that they're staying at and uh, you know that's above a saloon and he's a recovering gambling addict weasels his way into the game despite his wife's protests and uh, says oh, I just want to watch and then well how much do I need to to enter the game what what are the stakes and, and he just happens to have a, a briefcase full of money upstairs and and he gets to play in the game with these uh, four guys who've been playing for years and years and years and the you know huge stakes uh, you know twenty thousand dollars which is an outrageous amount of money uh, for the time but they're on uh, on this last hand where Henry Fonda is really just confident that he's got the best hand at the table. It's a, it's an all-in sort of situation where everybody at the table has put every penny they've got into the pot, but Henry Fonda can't uh, quite scrounge up enough money to meet the stakes, and he's you know sweating like crazy, and before he can show his hand or, or raise the stakes, he has a heart attack and collapses on the floor. So um, Mary, his wife, played by Joan Woodward, who's never played poker in her life, has to take over the game so that they don't lose their entire life savings on this one hand. So that's the big hand for the little lady. <laughs> and uh, 
and it's it um you know there there are twists in this movie it's uh, it's funny things aren't you know exactly what you expect them to be it's got a tv-ish quality to it you know there's not a whole lot of visual excitement to it but the script is really pretty solid and you you know there's a lot of tension because you you care what happens to this family and their little boy and you don't want them to lose their life savings on this card game and I don't know I I recommend it it's uh it's the sort of thing where it's definitely fun the first time you see it a lot of fun it's it's not great for repeated viewings but uh I would say I mean I think it's a pretty well liked movie a lot of people know about this just because it is it's a it's a ton of fun you know it's, it was a big Warner Brothers release and it, John Woodward really shines in it can-do sort of wife who has a lot thrust upon her and figures out how to how to make the best of it yeah check this out it's you know it's got a reputation for for a good reason but there's not a whole lot to say about it other than uh yeah go for it also in 66 joanne made uh, a fine madness with sean connery and you got to watch that movie i forgot that you weren't watching this and now i'm kind of upset <laughs> because i really I really want you to watch this. Number oh, I've one. seen it. I've seen it. That's oh my why God. I, I, that's why I made you watch it because I hate this movie. When we did our Kiss Mary Kill <laughs> 1966, I intentionally did not choose this movie as my kill because I hate it so much. I never want to see it again. Oh my God. It's terrible. <laughs> yeah. It's terrible and yet <sighs> So this is directed by uh Irvin Kirshner, right? Come on, Empire yeah. Strikes Back. Yeah. RoboCop 2. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the Hoodlum Priest, right? He did that. Um, oh, yeah, I think that's right. Holy shit, this movie. <laughs> I don't even, this is such a, this is such a film. You have to admit that this was not nearly, this was rather that a new kind of love was not nearly as misogynistic as this, and that's saying a lot. Well, except that this, that's part of the plot in a way with this movie i guess it this no no there's no excuse for it in this movie that's either. part it's part of the humor the jokes yeah. this is this movie is full of jokes and those jokes are slapping women boning women screaming about your needs punching your girlfriend uh calling women cows throwing like kettlebells at people's heads kicking your girlfriend down the stairs, punching a pregnant woman in the face, calling psychiatrists assholes, and then like breaking the, the privacy of their patients by like sending all their files out to their spouses. <laughs> like that's the jokes in this movie. Uh, but and he's, a, he's a nonconformist hero, right? That's what makes it so funny. That's the thing about this is that you really get, I mean, like for 1966, it's, this feels really weirdly, I mean, now granted, so it's just for, for films, this feels almost like ahead of itself. But this was, this is way more in line with all of these like plays that were coming out from like, I want to say 66 to like 69 that we get than movie adaptations of in the early 70s that are all about this nonconformity and anarchism and ex and like bohemian anything goes angry young man has has exploded kind of stuff and it's kind of interesting in that way because it's just so rare that you saw it kind of happening as it was happening especially with something so mainstream with Sean Connery in it you know what I mean? Like it's it's like weirdly fascinating. It's all about like undermining decency. And it's like really the beginning of the type of man 
that we are all now by 2021 completely sick of. <laughs> it, it's a brand of like anarchism that was really, honestly was really interesting for this decade that was so mired in conformity that I, I can understand the appeal of that aspect of it, but it's also just like so gratingly obnoxious and just awful and cruel at the same time that it just, and, and, it, and it's meant to be like, you know, as you said, it's not like it doesn't know that, but um, it's just, it's rough to watch it, especially because Sean Connery is not, he has no charm. When Elliot Gould does something like this, you're like, oh, I get it. You know, like, oh, he's a poet, right? Oh, by the way, the plot of this movie, I guess I should talk about <laughs> Samson Shilato, who is Sean Connery, is a poet, and um, his waitress girlfriend, uh, Rhoda, who is Joanne Woodward, um, is there to support him through all of his just, like, hissy fits. He can't, he's, like, lost his muse. He can't find inspiration. So he's going around, like, cleaning carpets. He's totally miserable and depressed. And he sleeps with every single woman that comes across his path that will let him. This movie opens with a rape, like, a, a false rape accusation slash joke. This the, Again, it only gets worse from there. He just like is just kind of, oh, he has a debt collector who's coming after him who he's like constantly trying to like assault and like kill as opposed to handling or dealing with or confronting. He's he's self-combusting in such a way that that Rhoda goes to uh, a famous psychiatrist who she sees on the news. This Patrick O'Neill is Dr. West. And she says, here's our life savings of $200. Cure him of his writer's block so that he can go on to become the genius that I know he is. Uh, and he doesn't kill himself. And Dr. West doesn't want to and then decides, oh, okay, fine. And by the way, Dr. West has a wife, Lydia, who's played by Gene Seberg. Lydia, he, he doesn't realize how much he's been alienating Lydia because he's a workaholic as well. And so now she is is getting frustrated, but he won't listen to her. Like he, th oh, you're you're perfect. Never mind it. And meanwhile, now she's she's been looking for someone else to sleep with herself. And so this the the movie really is about Samson realizing that his all of his money, you know, went to this doctor who he doesn't even believe in psychiatry. Just tries to destroy Doctor West's practice, and then Doctor West and then sleeps with Doctor West's wife. When he finds out, he says, you know what, maybe psychiatry is bullshit and um, actually lobotomies are the way to, to deal with somebody like this. So it gets dark and it gets really weird. And in a way, it reminds me, it's like if it wasn't so like ragingly misogynistically awful, like if this had actually had any charm whatsoever, if it had a better cast and like a completely different script, it could have been... Something. It reminds me of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and then it has an ending that really reminds me of A Clockwork Orange, except that, like, it's not nearly as good as either of those. It's like the dirt on the shoe of those movies. <laughs> but it's really fascinating. It's sort of this, like, it's this type of slice of life film about, a, like, a struggling, flawed anti-hero artist uh, who can't get out of his own head. And, and doesn't realize just how crazy everything around him has become because of it. And that turns into a much cooler movie as, as the decade progresses and then, you know, totally flourishes in the early 70s in that new Hollywood world. But yeah, it gets so mired in, in early 60s man sensibilities that it, it misses the forest for its uh, wife-beating trees, so...
That said, I kind of see why Joanne Woodward and Gene Seberg took these roles too, because it's really, it's a different kind of movie. It's kind of, it's interesting. It's just terrible. <laughs> it's just an awful film. It's all shot on location though, right? Isn't yeah. Part of the appeal. They have all these great shots of New York City. There's these amazing street shots. Really interesting, like the use of camera work. Like the whole thing is is interesting. It's a really interesting movie, but unfortunately it sucks. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I uh, I really didn't want to have to revisit this one, but I'm also really glad that you got to suffer through it. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. It's it's a such a slog. It's like I I wish I I'm like sort of fascinated by it, but I just hated it. So 1967 was another year where Joanne uh, took a break. Paul had uh, had a couple movies, uh, two of his bigger movies actually ombre another uh martin ritt and uh cool hand luke his defining role uh some might say we really need to get to cool hand luke one of these days because that's a great movie with, can, can we just so talk about the poster for ombre though <laughs> ombre means man paul newman is ombre great great poster <laughs> i can picture it i don't remember the text on the poster. that's the text <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty good movie, and Cool Hand Luke is great. 1968, Paul did one of his least liked movies, uh, The Secret War of Harry Frigg, a war comedy. But he also directed his wife, Joanne Woodward, in Rachel Rachel. not star in but got behind the camera for the first time and uh, made a really good movie i i think rachel rachel is fantastic i mean it is you know it's 68 it's it's the new hollywood era and this is a movie that definitely approaches that aesthetic in a lot of ways it's just a character driven movie about this small town teacher in New England, Connecticut, I think, who lives with her widowed mother. Uh, their, her father was a, uh, a funeral director, so she, they live above the funeral home that is now owned by somebody else. So death sort of hangs over, has, has hung over everything in, uh, in Rachel's life. She's a 35-year-old virgin who just has never, has never lived. She's just kind of stuck in her world. Her father's death when she was a child is sort of part of what stunted her. And her mother is really kind of a controlling, you know, needy woman who she can't uh, ever manage to escape her control. And yeah, there's there's very little going on in her life and not a whole lot happens in this movie except uh, eventually an old school chum from when she was in school comes comes back to town to visit his uh, his family and uh hits on her in the in the five and dime says uh he you know, he's just he's just hoping to get lucky and thought she might be an easy lay and she of course, rejects him at that point, but but later on, after her best friend Calla, played by Estelle Parsons, you know, takes her to a revival meeting, and Rachel hates it. Like it's just she she can't stand people being so emotional, and and she you know runs out of the meeting and and is, is really upset by it. And Estelle or, or Calla, who who has had 
a crush on Rachel. They're, they're co-workers at the school. You know, ends up you know trying to comfort her and ends up kissing her and, and reveals that she's she's loved Rachel all these years. Things are starting to happen. Um, Rachel is getting these opportunities for sexual fulfillment that she's never had before. She chooses Nick, uh, James Olsen, uh, to sort of get it on with. They have a, a date. They go to the park and, and have sex and, and Rachel loves it and thinks that uh, she wants to marry this guy and he really is just in it for a good time and blows her off and she's upset about that, thinking that this is, you know, this her life was heading in a new direction and it was going to be with this guy who really is not much of anything and she thinks she's pregnant um, so that's a whole big issue that this movie deals with. Rachel deciding whether she wants to uh, be a uh, an unwed mother. Yeah, it's just a it's just an, a nice little little character study, and uh, it's got a lot of a lot of technical flourishes. I think uh, Paul Newman does. You know, he he does some of those like very distinctly 1968 camera tricks where the camera's focused on some some foliage in the foreground and then the you know rack focuses or, or rack unfocuses, I guess, and and sort of see the blurry leaves in the foreground and you know it's, it's stylish it's a nice looking movie it's adapted from a novel i guess that sort of reveals itself in the rachel's got these monologues every so often in, in in her head but i think it works i mean that a lot of movies don't don't get these you know hearing the character's thoughts thing it's not very convincing or it doesn't work very well but in this movie it's you know there's such disjointed thoughts that she's having that really sort of resemble our own you know, she's getting up in the in the morning and is like, oh, I can't, I can't move. Can I move my arms? I can't move my arms. And then she moves her arms, and it all just feels like very much what it it feels like when we're when we're caught up in our own minds. And and I think it's a it's a style of narration or hearing the character's thoughts that uh, it, you know it seemed a little unusual. I hadn't really seen it done this way before, and I thought it worked. But yeah, yeah, good movie, Rachel. Rachel. Didn't she win Best Actress for this? I believe so, yeah. Rarely do I feel that a an award is is more deserved. Um yeah, this this is really awesome, this movie. I totally did not realize what this was about, and it turns out that it's kind of like the way I'm going to put it is that it's like the more realistic, lady-centric version of Harold and Maude. <laughs> Without all of the whimsy, honestly, um, it, it's like more sad and grounded, but it's the same realization. It's kind of the same message, this idea that there's more to living than merely breathing and existing. Man, it's just so rare that we get a movie from the 60s that has a layered female character. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, Joanne Woodward is perfect in this. She's the the perfect cast for somebody who has this sort of depth and, and to play this character that... You know, I guess by by 60s standards is is a total sad sack as far as women goes because she's uh, alone and and living with her parents at the age of 35 and just has a a small job as a local teacher and, and has never left her family house and has no romantic future in sight. And it's as we call it, everyone I know right now. (laughs) In 2021, totally normal for us. In this generation, but, uh, you know, back then that was like real, like real pathetic. She has this line where she's like, I am in the exact middle of my life. And I was like, screw you. (laughs) (laughs) Screw you, Rachel. But yeah, so it's like, you know, it's this character who's treading water and doesn't see a future for herself. And Joanne plays it 
not like a she you know she plays it like somebody who is clearly um insulated herself from everything because she's just afraid she's just not um brave enough to to face the fact that you know life is is full of ups and downs and that's not that's not necessarily a bad thing so it kind of takes nick who i feel like james olsen he, he seems like he's also like doing a proto jack nicholson impersonation he's sort of balding like jack nicholson he just has that like that hip sleaziness to him, you know, where he's like he's a lot cooler than like your typical Sean Connery, but he's just kind of as as crappy, but in a different way. But like he treats her more like a real human, but he still is like hanging on to it's like that 60s hangover of misogyny. Yeah, he's less sinister than than Jack Nicholson would have played it. Definitely. But he's also still a creep. He don't, I don't think he realizes just how much. She, she's a virgin and he doesn't really realize that which was you know it's on him but so then once he realizes that he's sort of gotten himself a bit way too far into something that he was already pushing for to begin with he kind of cuts and runs he does it you know in like a don't worry baby i'll be back kind of way but kind of a creep who went with that photo he shows her this photo like they have they have sex and she's like you know well maybe we can like get married and have a kid <laughs> uh you know and it's like too too soon too soon but um you know he shows this photo i thought it was a photo of him as a child and he says he's not god but she clearly interprets it as a photo of his child which she of course later realizes when she calls his house and his mother picks up and he's you know gone back to wherever he was from which was from out of town and she's like yeah he doesn't have a wife or a child and so you know she feels duped by that which is fair yeah, he's a teacher in in the city somewhere. So that's they sort of connect over that that they're both teachers, but he just is not interested in small town Connecticut life. He needs to live in the city where things are exciting. Rachel sort of uh, begins to understand where he's coming from a little bit. But you're right, she's not just a sad sack through this movie. Like she's a fully rounded character. Her life is not exciting. But she has moments of joy, moments of, of sorrow. You know, she's she 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 just feels like a really like a real human. Like there are more facets to her. Like there's so much that she does in this movie that you can't do in a more plot driven sort of movie. She just sort of exists in it, and you see her fears, her fears of death. Like this this at at one point she like sneaks into into the basement of her father's funeral home when she's a kid. Actually, the the daughter of of Paul and Joanne play plays uh, Joanne as a little girl, and she sort of s- sneaks in and watches her father, you know, prepare this dead kid. Actually, the the twin brother of Nick, we find out, um, who who died as a child, and this sort of traumatized her. And this is another thing that sort of drew her to Nick, is this having this traumatic experience that she sort of shared with him. She's got these fears, and that's part of why she can't you know, never really like ventures out or does, you know, does anything too exciting because she just like everything seems like it's, it's got the death hangs over everything, I guess, for her. And that's, um, you know, she sort of realizes that she, she's Harold. Yeah. Yeah. She, she needs to live. And she, she also like, there's this one child that she teaches who has a bad home life and she really like wants to adopt him. You know, this is just one of her internal monologue thoughts there. You get to, know what she's feeling but you don't think it's anything she'll actually act on but you know that she's got this like mothering instinct that she's not going to do anything about but it's there yeah she wants something more but she doesn't know how to obtain it and she's too afraid to to to, like leave her bubble to you know even attempt to figure it out and 
It's it's real. And I love, I mean, Estelle Parsons as, as her friend Kala is really awesome. And in a way, it's almost a shame that, that she doesn't have a bigger role because she's this really fascinating character, especially for 60s cinema. And right after we just did our sapphic cinema episode, but her whole thing about you know, basically being in the closet. She's like an evangelical Christian who takes Rachel to this church where they're going to go speak in tongues or whatever. And there's all this like grabbing of your face and stuff like that. (laughs) And then, you know, she, she's also in the closet and there's a really like kind of heartbreaking scene where she comes to Rachel's house after this mistaken kiss. Uh, She comes with a note and Rachel catches her leaving the note. And she says it in such a practical way, like Estelle Parsons really crushes it. She says it like, well, I just like, I can't sleep. Like this was such a big deal for me. And and, and Rachel, meanwhile, like forgot it, you know, like Rachel, meanwhile, <laughs> totally like a horrible friend in that respect, like just decided I'm going to put it out of my mind and never speak to her again. You know, like, oh, she's, you know, there's something wrong with her or whatever, you know, like she just totally ignores it. And meanwhile, poor Kala has been suffering and they have this conversation where Kala realizes, you know what, this was, I don't even, you know, yeah, I'm not even going to bother with this. This is too heartbreaking for me. I'm just going to take my note. Don't worry about it. She's like, she even says like, there's a confession on there that, you know, just forget about it. No, no. <laughs> and, and it's so sad. And then there's this finally, like the only like vague sense of closure we get at the end is where I don't really want to, I don't know if it's even a spoiler. I feel like this movie, the, the the joy of this movie is in watching this movie. It's really like you said, the little pieces of it, but basically that she's, she has to, she leaves town and Kala comes to greet her and say, say goodbye there. And, and they've sort of reconciled in the meanwhile, but she says to Kala, like a kind of wish, sometimes she says, quote, Kala, sometimes I wish it could have been different for you, but it kind of feels like she's saying, I kind of wish you were a man. Is that how she says it? I thought she was saying it was she wishes it was different for her that she could be attracted to a woman. That's how it felt anyway. I don't remember the exact line of dialogue, but that's how That's how it that's feels. That's how I interpret it. But yeah. it feels more like less I want wish I was gay and more like I wish you were a guy. Hmm. That's how that's how I interpreted it. But either way, it's 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 some version of that. If I wrote down the quote wrong then I did, but it it's some it's some version of that where it's actually like it it's at least like a more humanizing line as opposed to say like the children's hour where it's like, Oh, you're gay. That sucks. Like (laughs) you may as well die. You know, like this, this one at least makes some effort towards saying this was a more interesting drama that we didn't even touch basically. But I don't know. It's a really interesting subplot that, that does, it does enrich everything here, but I, I still found Rachel's story to be compelling personally like I, I I like both of those stories. They're both interesting. I'm not the biggest Estelle Parsons fan. Like she comes off as too cartoonish for me a lot of the time. Like in in this, in the you know at least in the first half of the movie, and like most of Bonnie and Clyde, she's just too too much. Too like you know the big glasses she's wearing in this movie, and that 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 hair that you know the really comical hair that she's got in the, in this, and you know she's just pitched it at such a like. She's so shrieky in in uh, in Bonnie and Clyde, but she does like when this movie humanizes her, like shows that she's not just this funny character that she's really got some some stuff going on. She does nail it, but I I, I guess I just wanted to mention that I I do tend to have a little trouble with Estelle Parsons. She worked for me in this movie strictly because I think of the setting and the fact that she's like she just seems like such a character. 
You know what I mean? Like this, this is like, yeah, this is that, that one school teacher that like talks weird and wears big glasses. <laughs> like it just worked for me in that sense. And like, you know, the fact that she, she remains weird, even when she's has her most deepest soul crushing confessions. And she's still like this, this weird person. Like it, it felt genuine for me because she's so consistent with that. It didn't ever feel like a caricature. It felt like, it felt like the person you find in the your, your local evangelical church. <laughs> yeah. But it's cool to see a coming of age story for a 35 year old. <laughs> yeah, it's a good way to put it. You know, especially now more than ever that it's like, it's very relatable, I think, for a lot of people in, in my age. And I bet it was relatable then too, you know? I mean, like, this is why people have midlife crises. You, you know, you got married at 18 and then you turn 35 and you're like, what am I doing? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I know this film got some attention. I don't, you know, it's not too talked about anymore, but I think you know, people should be talking about it more because it does really, it does really work as like, you know, just a just a great character study, a great female-centric film from this, from a decade that doesn't have many of them and just a, a great early entry in the whole new Hollywood thing that was happening. This is the one to seek out if you haven't seen Rachel, Rachel. And if nothing else, even though, again, this this movie is all Joanne Woodward just being awesome, but props to Paul Newman for being a nice enough husband, for being an absolute dreamboat hero <laughs> to get to, to make this movie just so that his wife can have such a, a cool layered role that would never have, without having his star power pushing for something like this for her, this wouldn't have been made. Like, I feel like it's that, it's that kind of Cassavetes Fellini thing, you know, like like husbands um, pushing for really interesting and, and layered roles for their wives. <laughs> yeah, that's true. As a as a gift uh, to their wife because they love them, men. Yeah, yeah. It seems like Paul Newman is more of a sweetie pie, uh, you know, behind the scenes than he is in any of these roles that we see him play in any of these movies. <laughs> God. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of which, well, before we talk about the final. Uh, uh, Joanne and Paul movie from 1969. I'll, I'll mention that Paul Newman's other really iconic role from, well, I don't know, I guess The Hustler counts as an iconic role, but Paul Newman made Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid in 1969. And that, as everyone knows, is a huge movie that captures the, the 60s for a lot of people. Also in that year, he made a much less iconic movie with, uh, with Joanne Woodward called Winning. Directed by uh, James Goldstone. What else did he do? Roller Coaster, which is the uh, the terror on a roller coaster movie from 77 that Sparks actually appears in and, and plays a few songs uh, on stage. In winning, Paul Newman takes his race car love. Or was this the movie that made him love race cars? I think it was, yeah. I think that this movie came first and then he became a race car lover. He plays, uh, Paul Newman plays Frank Capua who is a race car, I don't know, king. He seems like he's doing pretty well. Winner. He's a winner. A lot of this movie is just like essentially documentary footage of the Indy 500 and race car drivers and tinkering with motors and driving 
and driving in a circle, turning left a whole lot of times, turning left. There is a lot of Ricky Bobby in this movie. (laughs) (laughs) Going fast. He, uh, you know, wins race. He is in, in town. He gets drunk. He's wandering around. He sees a rental car place where he meets Alora, who is Joanne Woodward. And they have a whirlwind romance. They, um, you know, he says, hey, like, I'm too drunk to drive, but why don't we rent a car from, from your car service here right now? And let's go for a drive and you drive me. And uh, she takes him down to the, the lake. And he's like... Uh, is this where you take all your boys? And she's like, actually, I'm not a slash. <laughs> and uh, she tells him she was married before because she was lonely, which I think is a is a notable line in this movie. He just sweeps her off her feet. He just enjoys being around her so much. He like calls her mom and child and says, actually, I'm, I'm not going to come back for a week and we're going <laughs> to drive cross country all the way to santa barbara i want to say which is where he's from then he asked her to marry him the whole thing feels like it takes place in about that's the one problem with this movie uh i mean there's a a handful of problems but the the biggest problem for me is that the sense of time is really warped i I had a hard time like you if you told me this whole movie took place in two weeks i'd be like yeah (laughs) it does sort of feel that way but um but it's but it's not but um but yeah so so they get married and then it kind of cuts to what, what had to have been longer than two weeks, but kind of feels like two weeks, that, that they're now married and he spends just all of his time being a workaholic and he is just driving and tinkering with motors and driving and tinkering with motors. And at first it's okay. Like she calls, they have like a little phone romance. And then there's one scene that's, she tries to initiate phone sex basically. And he just doesn't know what to say. And so she gets pissed off and she hangs up on him. She's trying to create more of a romance and, and he's just too caught up in his car thing to notice. And meanwhile, Robert Wagner everyone's villain who plays this guy luther who is basically his main race car rival so at one point joanne woodward is saying oh why don't i come visit you and he's like well i'm gonna be working on the tinkering on the car for 10 hours a day so it doesn't feel fair to have you come she's like i just want to come they go out she meets wagner and then basically one thing leads to another one day he goes to the garage and he says all right i'm here for my 10 hours of tinkering and they're like you know what why don't you go home to your wife in the motel (laughs) so he says okay fine i'll take the day off he goes to the motel and he finds robert wagner in bed with her which is shocking because her character is definitely more of a the good housewife you don't really expect it here up, up until here the movie's been so positive it does have a good kind of like cold snap where you really like you can see it coming in a way because you're like, I don't know how they're going to fill out another two hours of just like happy race car driving. But it's a little shocking. And so the rest of this film is basically about this, this their their marriage falling apart. She has a son, Charlie, who's played by Richard Thomas, and he is just little 60s man teen. He is just disgusted by it how his mother has done poor old Frank so dirty and oh Frank what a hero he drives race cars and the son says like there's they have a whole conversation where the son's like what about my happiness like I want to be with you I don't want to be with my like slut mother and you know (laughs) even (laughs) even Paul Newman's like you know she raised you I've only been here for like an hour and a half but um and if your mom wasn't so horny I wouldn't even be your dad (laughs) (laughs) 
another another like proto 70s film with the the dialogue is is one foot in the 60s and the filmmaking is definitely that new hollywood doc footage characters that are not all good and not all bad though it could have been a lot more explicit like i feel like this movie is way more sympathetic to paul newman than it is to joanne woodward whereas i actually again from the terrace full circle just being bored is a lot more to that like it's not that she's just like bored so she decides to pick up a man like he's completely abandoned her as far as a partnership and that's more frustrating than just being bored you know what i mean so she's far more sympathetic in this movie i mean it definitely is a sign of the times that she's still the one who has the last line of the film is this was your fault but i'm responsible or maybe it was my fault and you're responsible so like yeah. she's she is to, she's to blame but paul newman's also willing to accept as much of the blame by the end and reconcile over that which is which is great which is really shows that the times have changed in in the in 10 intervening years, I think. I actually think that the, the this movie's um, idea of what marriage is is actually pretty solid, <laughs> even though uh, it, it kind of goes through a lot of drama to get there. But it's interesting for the 60s especially to see this kind of looser approach to marriage and not being so dogmatic about it and this idea that, you know, you get married and that's it, then you die. Like, there, there there's definitely more um, room for growth and humanity in this movie and in this marriage than you see in a lot of these other films like there's a scene where charlie is so furious that they're getting divorced and and paul newman has a line where he says you know people stay married because they want to not because the doors are locked so you know there is this acceptance of like it takes two to tango kind of thing i mean but it's like you know you you had steak at home joanne and you went out for hamburger so i was surprised how much i liked this movie it's sort of got the this reputation where between like you know this and Grand Prix and Le Mans and you know there were a bunch of big race car movies that were coming out at this time with big stars you know James Garner and Steve McQueen and this one is the the one that nobody likes of, of the three I actually liked it and maybe part of it is because it's not as exciting as as the racing in Grand Prix I guess maybe that's why people don't like it as much but I I sort of liked how it was more interested in the melodrama. I mean, sure, there's lots of racing, and some of it is pretty exciting, but, but yeah, it really just cares about its characters, and it sort of takes a really melodramatic story, like from the terrace, but makes it more real. You know, it, this movie feels like... Well, it finally has Paul Newman saying, too. He's like, my life is shit. He says, my, <laughs> my driving is good, but my life is crap. And you're like, yes, this is what we needed from, from the terrace. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I was, uh, you know, it's it's problematic. And some of the, you know, some of the plot lines seem seem a little out of nowhere. I mean, could you plan an affair more poorly? Like what? Right. <laughs> it's like she wanted Frank to walk in on uh, on her doing it with uh, with Robert Wagner. But Richard Thomas, I, I, I thought was he's a kid, but he's a pretty believable kid. He's supposed to be like 16 years old or something. And this this must have been right before he was John Boy on the Waltons. But he's playing a really similar sort of character, really innocent and likable and emotionally raw. And I thought he added a dimension to this movie that you know, really showed that its interest was in human beings and the way they relate to each other and, and less on cars and how they run. And I appreciated that. Oh, absolutely. There's not a whole lot more to this movie than that. It's just a race car driver movie that's that's um, interested in its characters more than racing, maybe. Which, if you're listening to this podcast, I feel like is is high praise from 
Cinema 60. (laughs) That's what we want out of a movie for sure. I mean, but again, there's so much, there's so much footage of racing. It's just not like, and there's like, you know, some crashes and stuff like that, but um, it's just not, yeah, as you said, it's not about racing considering how much footage there is of racing. Yeah. I mean, it really gave me a, a good sense of how the Indy 500 works. I'm not sure I ever quite understood what all the flags meant and how the, you know, the, the pit stops worked. It's, it's a nice portrait of, of that event and, and the types of people that go to it and, and uh, the excitement of it. And there, there's definitely that aspect to it. It's not, you know, I, I think there's plenty here for racing fans, too. Um, so after, I mean, that's, that's it for the 60s for both of these actors. The next year, um, they made WUSA together which i really planned on watching last night but it got too late and i it's it's 1970 and it's supposed to be a very 70s movie so i'm not too necessary for me to talk about it but but i really want i thought it might be a nice capper to bring to talk about that a little bit but i didn't based on a 67 novel yeah you haven't seen it have you nope (laughs) i want to see it it sounds great but yeah and then he um Paul Newman in the 70s went on to direct Joanne Woodward again in The Effect of Gamma Rays on Man in the Moon Marigolds. Another success in, in terms of giving uh, his wife an, an excellent role and, and just uh, being the, the director and producer on that. That was 1972. Um, and they, you know, they went on to make plenty of stuff together. They did a TV movie version of Glass Menagerie, I think, that she where she was a star and he was a director. And they're, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, they're in together. So, you know, and they're in their 50 years of marriage. Mr. and Mrs. Bridge. Bridge, yes, I'm sorry. <laughs> Not Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Bridge. They had a long career of working together and they're um, a great pair on and, and off the screen. And uh, But the, the 60s really was the peaks for, for both of them full-on legitimate movie stars the both of them individually and together in the 60s and uh, the stuff we talked about is really the the good stuff for for both of them what's cool about them also being such big stars is the fact that they they do feel so modern and so dare i say progressive they're really an interesting pair that chooses interesting roles and even when they have stinkers i feel like they're still choosing an interesting role And I really appreciate that about both of their careers, like that Paul Newman could have just coasted on being a hottie and instead would choose to take roles that were, you know, interesting to him in in whatever which way. And also, you know, even when he's kind of a a crummy guy, it's like he's playing it like an antihero. It's never the Sean Connery version of that. I'm just this is Sean Connery slander hour. (laughs) I also think that Paul Newman was is much more willing to phone it in than Joanne Woodward is. Like, she made something out of her role in A New Kind of Love, but Paul Newman does nothing with his role in that movie. Other than just being Paul Newman, He he's not trying at all. He clearly doesn't care about his character in that movie or, or what he's going through and, and does just barely enough to, you know, he shows up on sets and on set and, and read his lines, and, and that's about all he did for that movie. But whereas Joanne Woodward is... Yeah, you, know, you know, she always she was in crummy movies, but she always you know did something interesting with her characters. So. I kind of well, it, you know, it's you're right. I, it's funny because watching these movies because we were focusing on Joanne Woodward uh, a bit more than than Newman, and we we left out all of Newman's biggest hits. You're right because I watching it this time around, I kind of felt like you know maybe Joanne is the better actor. I don't know that I would say that that's not even true. I actually, I like Paul Newman a lot as an actor. 
And his great movies, I think, are like some of like, I think HUD is just like a top 10 film of all time kind of movie. Like, I think HUD's amazing. Uh, and he's amazing in it. And when he's good, he's great. But he's also when he's good, he's he's a type of role. And um, I don't know that he has as much of a range as she does. Yeah, he's always kind of some combination of broody and cocky and little cold, but also charming. And he's he's always Paul Newman, whereas I think Joanne Woodward did. Yeah, she was a different person in every movie. So that, uh, yeah, he's he's more of a, a matinee idol and she's more of an actor, I think. But he is, he's also really, when he's good, he is really good, so... I'm not complaining. It's like apples and oranges, really. It's two. It's like two different styles, though. I think I would say that, like, if I'm ranking in my brain, I kind of I I'm more drawn to the Joanne Woodward type of actor than I am the Paul Newman type of actor, as far as ranking my favorite performances. But you know, again, like if like of the movies that both of them made for like best film ever, it's I like I have to give it to to Newman. So yeah, he just made more classics than she did. It's hard not to hold. Newman up is you know one of one of the best that Hollywood has ever given us. Uh, she just she just wasn't in enough box office hits, enough you know movies that people remember. I, I think there wasn't there wasn't enough roles for for that type of female actor. Yeah, in the sixties, you know, I, I think that's really what it comes down to because she had it, you know, and when, like in, when she was given Rachel, Rachel, she she did it and, and won awards for it, and so. I think it, it's a shame she didn't have more of that. I know that she said basically that she cooled off her career for, you know, raising her kids and, and had very mixed emotions about that. And I think that's also something that is is generational, like not that you can't still do that now, but this idea that like you have to give up your career in order to do that. I think that, you know, there's a bit more leeway and options, though it's still pretty hard to do uh, in general, but he had an easier time of becoming a, a bigger star and for women at this time to become such a big star, you just had to be, I mean, you had to be talented. Uh, you know, I'm not trying to knock anyone, but you also had to be, I think hotter. <laughs> yeah. Well, she also, I mean, she tried to charm audiences just with her skill, like doing an amazing job acting. Whereas I think Paul Newman always just tried to charm the audience directly. Like here I am on the screen making love to the audience and that's that's what made him such a star where she that was not her style she was often you know not terribly likable you know not definitely not you know for being a beautiful woman she doesn't have you know half the sex appeal that paul newman does like just being uh sitting there on the screen it's that's just not the type of person she is she doesn't have that kind of screen chemistry i guess she's just a skilled actor it is it is apples and oranges you can't really compare them and then they went on to make like baller microwave popcorn (laughs) yeah yeah really (laughs) i mean we haven't even mentioned their politics at all but uh obviously we're we're fans of how uh progressive they were and and everything they did outside of their movie careers it's just cool to see. I would say that it's it's cool to see. Oh man, that lemonade is real good. It's cool to see um, married couple that had that that kind of focus too. You know, this like they were both in their own right really uh, fantastic actors, really interesting people. They could have stopped there, and yet they clearly like 
had other interests. And I always enjoy seeing that in in anyone who's like made it like, you know, the like the it's the I don't know, it's like the Steve Martin school. You know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm much more impressed with somebody who like can be such a genius in one area and then like in their own time is like also like I'm I've like <laughs> recorded this banjo album like you know like I just enjoy seeing people that have multiple facets to their personality so to me that's that's just always a positive and and you know the the fact that he makes that good salad dressing is <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conosceva bene by Piero Piccioni. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema-60.com. And follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.